guest today is a lifelong advocate for the education and effort to stop human trafficking in its many obvious and also hidden ways. This is an issue that is far more prevalent than most can imagine, and the road to discovery and recovery is long, but there are many people helping along the way. If you'd like to get information or dedicate your time, please check the episode notes below for some links. Here's my friend, Jana Piper. Jana, what is your relationship with the topic of sex trafficking or human trafficking or both? Um, well, prim- my, my general focus is mostly on domestic minor sex trafficking. Um, that has been, I've known about that since I was 14 years old. So 1993. Um, but, you know, human trafficking in general is just a horrible thing and we should end modern to slavery and everybody should be concerned about it. And that's kind of my opinions on that. How did you get into it 14 years old? So I went to Twalton Valley Junior Academy. I think it's just Twalton Valley Academy now. It's a small Seventh-day Adventist elementary school, K through 10, out in Hillsboro. Um and we, yeah, when I was 14, we got word that a girl who was a former student there had been murdered. And they had assumed that she would, was murdered by her pimp because she, she had been being trafficked cause she was, and she wanted to get out. And so he slit her throat. She was only 16 at the time. She was, actually had been in my oldest brother's class. He knew her personally. Her younger brother was still a student at the school. He was in the sixth grade. And so I would, I actually just not only, obviously that had a huge impact on me for remembering it from, you know, 30 years ago, um, to even witnessing how it affected her brother and her mom, because her mom would come, was a single mom and she would come and pick up her son from school and I would see them. So, so I could see the actual effect of it on, in their personas and their faces and even him him as a kid. He was a sweet kid, but he was just a troublemaker. So he was getting in trouble all the time too after that. So your school, you said a preparatory school? Private school. Private school. Private Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. Okay. So a religious school. Yes. Okay. And this young girl went there until she was 15 or 16 and then left and got involved? So... I mean, that's one of the ways that, I mean, most likely her pimp was what we would refer to as a Romeo pimp. He was, you know, her boyfriend. Um, and is one of the ways that they, they do target vulnerable individuals. And one of them would be she, a child of a single mother. So no father in a presence and, and not, they weren't, you know, well off either. So they were, you know, struggling financially or something like that. She was missing that love and attention that she would normally get from a father in her life. Most likely, he exploited that, started dating her, and then used that as a way to get her to start doing um, sex work. So this happened while she was going to school there. She decided to drop out, I imagine, or she continued to go? Um, it varies between... I, I don't know exactly... I didn't know her at all before we, this story came out, before we learned that she had been murdered. Um my brother knew her and had been, I think they had been in the same class like a year or two years before that. So I don't know how many years she was at the school, what years or anything along those lines. I just knew that she was a former student. Her brother was still a student. Um, but how Romeo pimps operate is they they start dating a their target, their victim, and then basically selling them a whole like 
you know, future of them being together and all this fun stuff. It's like, oh, but we need to finance it. And that's when he would say, well, you, in order to finance it, you need to start having sex with my friends or, mm-hmm. and then it would progress from there. And a lot of times they, they keep up pretenses as in the, the victim will still be going to school and then be um, forced to do sex work in the evenings. Uh, but a lot of times in, in these instances, yeah, the girls do drop out of school. And when you, when you're in a single parent household, it's a lot more difficult for the parents to keep track of what their kids are doing all the time. So it's a lot easier for that. I don't know if she thought the school went to another school because again, they weren't, you know, a rich family, uh, that they there were scholarships for people who were, who are needing it to attend the school, but again, cost wise, the I know a couple of my other friends who would go to that school for a while had to leave and go to a public school just because of the cost. So that could have been the case too. Um, I don't know that part of the story. Yeah, I just find it interesting that it was a private religious school. That just doesn't seem likely. It doesn't, but that's one of the things that. Um, that I want to also emphasize in this, it, it there's even, you know, some groups call it like in our own backyard. It, if it happened to, if it directly affected me, a basically a relatively small town, white Seventh-day Adventist Christian girl, it can happen in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It hap- and it happens everywhere. It's all over the Portland area. I mean, like Portland has the largest commercial sex industry per cap in the United States and not coincidentally has the second largest rate, a highest rate of child sex trafficking in the United States. Hmm. Cause when there's that high of a demand, then there isn't enough legitimate supply to provide it without going without traffickers, the sociopaths to then force individuals into the industry just for them to make money because they know they can the demand is there so you were going to school there you were 14 years old this stuff happened you didn't really know who she was you went about the rest of your life and how many years later did you decide that you wanted to focus on this and make it an important part of what you were trying to accomplish oh we aren't done with my childhood yet oh let's keep going then yeah so um, i started um pet sitting when i was 15 years old um, when my very second client lived on Northwest 18th and Everett. The first time I went to go work there, uh, I didn't have, my dad just dropped me off in the evening, didn't have any any food with me. So he just gave me money. It's like, oh, well, go up to Fred Meyers and get yourself whatever food you want tomorrow. Now, West Burnside doesn't look anything at all today like it did back in 1994. You know, there weren't all of these like, you know, high-end apartments or, you know, trendy brunch spots or any like the hip hangouts or any kind of, you know, these chic boutiques that are out there now is just seedy hotels and bars. So the next morning I walk up Burnside to go find the Fred Meyer and this balding middle-aged man in a black Hyundai drives past me, turns around, drives past me again, turns around, drives past me again, turns into this parking lot where I was just about to walk through I'm just praying, like, please don't let me, please let me get past this. Please let me get past this. Because my mind is thinking, he he's wanting something from me, and I'm thinking kidnap. Well, I did get past it. So when he came back out to Burnside, he turned back west to pass me again, turned around, passed me again. This time I looked at him, 
we made eye contact and he was like motioning with his head for me to go over to him. And I'm like, fuck. At this point, I'm like, I missed where Fred Meyer was completely. Like, you know, it's a big building even back then, big old sign. I'm like, okay, I passed it. I don't know where it is. So I go up to the Chevron on 23rd to ask for directions for Fred Myers. And after that, I didn't see the guy anymore. I think he thought I was probably going to like report, hey, this guy's following me and being creepy. And, um, but knowing what I know now about how it works, he definitely was most likely wanting to purchase me. Hmm. Um, and I don't look how old I look now. I'm like, I always looked younger than I really am. But just to give an idea of how young I looked at 15, when I was 19 and in college, a few days before my 19th birthday, I was getting carted going into rated R movies and was stopped by a policeman while I was on my way to work because he mistook me for a middle schooler. (laughs) So there was no way this guy thought I was even 15, let alone a consenting adult that he was wanting to... So at that time in Portland in 1994, yeah. people in that criminal enterprise would drive around and see young girls walking by themselves and attempt to recruit them. Um, I think he was most likely a John and wanted to purchase me. So he thought you were working. Yes. I see. Because um, I'm like, it's as the... The doctor mentioned in in your interview with him, 82nd is notorious for that, especially back in there where, yeah, the the Johns would just drive up and down the street looking for anybody, like any girl or woman who looked like they were a streetwalker to purchase. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I wasn't like, you know, you know, 15, 15 year olds back in the 90s did not dress at all like provocatively or anything. I was just normal um you know, shorts and a t-shirt or whatever it was, jeans and a t-shirt. But I was still walking alone on a, not a common street where young girls just walk alone. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer. You can't just walk around anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for, for the longest time, you could really kind of go anywhere and do anything you wanted. But now, I don't know, I guess over time is more, negative things happened and parents got more concerned then you're i mean we're at a point now where you kind of don't even let your kids go anywhere alone even if they got cell phones because you're kind of worried about them because of situations like what you're talking about oh yeah like well the irony is like you know crime levels has actually dropped significantly and now that you know parents are the parents it's more of parents fear than about their kids being left alone in the 80s and 90s kids were playing alone out in the streets all the time but the crime rate was higher back then so it's more along the lines of this information age that parents know what could happen and they yeah they pre, you know they want to prevent it one more thing happened when i was at about the same age i was um went up to Victoria to spend a week with my grandparents and I was reading the Canadian Reader's Digest and there was an article in that digest about the Romeo pimp and how he operated. And so that's where I really got to understand a little bit more about, you know, prostitution and that most, there's quite a few, you know, prostitutes who are children and they or, and or they don't actually choose to work in the life. And, but I mean, at the time, there wasn't anything that the internet hadn't been hadn't existed yet, hadn't been invented yet, or hasn't been wasn't as widespread available to the consumer yet. 
um, I remember I remember when AOL became a thing. That was a few years after this. <laughs> uh, yeah, that dial-up, gotta love it. Um, and so, yeah, I just went back to, you know, back to my life. It was always in the, you know, in the back of my head. Went to college, came back here. Um, in 2009, I think it was, I joined a, a business networking group because that's when I started really focusing on my pessimism as a business and not a side thing. Um, one of the other business owners I met was a hairdresser, and I went to go visit her business because that's one of the things that we did. We go visit other people's businesses to find out about them, and then we do like a little commercial for them in our networking meeting. And in that meeting, she mentioned that her daughter worked a lot in you know ending sex trafficking and had done you know uh, documentaries about it. And so that was like that. All those memories from my childhood just kind of came back to the forefront. I'm like. Ooh, I can actually research this now. The internet's available. I can go, what is sex trafficking? How does it all work? Um, and that was when it was first like, oh, yeah, sex trafficking isn't just prostitution. Sex trafficking happens in all areas of the commercial sex industry, from stripping to porn to live sex shows and the standard, you know, yeah, prostitution. And that's also when I was starting to learn about how it, how, Portland operated like, yeah, it has the largest commercial sex industry per cap and the second highest rate of child sex trafficking. And then, but it, and I was trying to find ways that I could work in it to end it. But my personality and my schedule doesn't really allow for me to work directly with survivors. I'm a little bit too blunt. Um, for me, um, for me recovering from my own trauma, actually like being told exactly what happened, like, yeah, this, this really did happen to you. That helped me clarify and get, you know, solidified and helped me in my healing, but not a whole lot of people are just able to accept the truth and just go, oh, okay, now everything makes sense. It's more like a lot of the times when they learn, oh, no, no, he's not your boyfriend. He's your pimp. He's trafficking you. Um, a lot of um, victim survivors will shut down and then start, like, you know, instead of having clarity, go, oh, yeah, this is something that happened to me. It's not my fault. A lot of people was like, oh, well, it's, you know, when it comes to trauma-informed, most people do not respond to that blunt truth as a healing mechanism. Instead, it, it, a lot of times it can trigger them. So. Well, that is an insanely traumatic event or series of events that could break a lot of people. And yeah. the older I get and the more I learn and the more I understand about myself and how lucky I am in a lot of ways that I didn't have like some major significant traumatic event. When you view other people that have had any life that that is just devastating – I don't know. I, I really can't understand how difficult it would be to come out of that. And it's it's a lifelong thing. You have people who experience something in their childhood that maybe never get over it. It's like a constant battle. You're always dealing with it. And I think it's really just a, a matter of each individual and what they're willing to do with it. But to to go through something like that where someone owns you and someone's in charge of you and someone dictates who has sex with you. That's some crazy stuff. Yeah. 
to for anybody to deal with. And if you put it on a kid, kids can barely I mean, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25. And if you've been brainwashed into believing that this person is your uh, your guardian or your savior or is responsible for you and they're giving you money and they're allowing you the opportunity to have any sort of freedom, like you you develop a, a, a different relationship with them than you should. It's mm. It's unbalanced. And then if you finally figure out how to break away from that, everything could just be so messed up when you try to like reconfigure the pathways and everything. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of survive, survivors who have been willing to tell their story have mentioned, like, you know, even like, you know, while it's happening, they've had you know, out of body experiences where it's like, it's not really happening to them. They disassociate. Some of them even mentioned like they felt themselves like floating above the instance and just like, watching them in, in the act. Um, and then, yeah, as as children, they don't have the, a lot of them. They don't know how to actually like they they lost the opportunity to learn or be educated in a, you know the normal way. They don't have a lot of the development that happens in your childhood. It just it stops. Um, I remember back when Doctor Drew wasn't crazy, <laughs> and you know he. And 94.7 actually had his show late in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. And that was also before Adam Carolla went crazy too. Um, and one of the things that he would, he would mention whenever somebody would, it was predominantly women who would call up into the show and sound like little children. He would automatically go, something happened in your childhood. Some traumatic thing happened in your childhood that stunted your growth. And that's why, like, in, even in their vocalizations, they didn't sound like adults. Um, and... So yeah, and then a lot of a lot of these um, victim survivors, when the standard way of the people who are trapped into this life, they're manipulated and coerced into it. They aren't like outright kidnapped and then forced to do it. So a lot of them don't they don't even realize that they are being trafficked. They don't know it, and so it's very one of the things like telling them directly no that, that that that's not what love is that he's not he doesn't love you he's trafficking you like this is e you know this is evil this is criminal a lot of times they since it hasn't been like slowly like the like the instead of like slowly unraveling the lies it's just like taking a shotgun blast to it and that can be just as traumatic as the other events itself having their whole world view destroyed mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, that worked for me, but for most people, um, it's, an, it's adding trauma on top of the trauma. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, it, sometimes it, it can be more traumatic to accept that something bad is happening than just to go with it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you become accustomed to living a certain way and you find comfort in it no matter how shitty it's it is. What, it's what you know. Yeah. People, like a lot of people are just terrified of change yeah. or anything different. So if it's something, if you, you know, that's why one, like if you grow up in an abusive household, your your um, vulnerability to being trafficked is significantly higher. If you were sexually abused as a child, your your vulnerability is higher. Mm -hmm. um, and even like, and, you know, if you're in the foster system, that's another vulnerability marker that you will be targeted by a trafficker to 
manipulate. Um, all of those things, like if it, it feels like if you're the only way that the people who are supposed to love you show you love is through violence, then you think that violence is love. Yeah. Especially when it happens when your your brain is developing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I imagine a lot of those younger people don't even really know what sex is. And then all of a sudden this thing is happening and they're like, this this is different from, because sex yeah. is different from everything else. Yeah. And if you have somebody controlling whether or not that's going to happen, God, that's got to be so weird. Yeah. Yeah. So you decided that this was going to become a focus of your life. And you said that you don't work directly with the victims? Correct. Because um, again, my just my personality doesn't allow for me to I tend to just say what things are. And again, that's not exactly what trauma-informed is. Um, you're, too, you're too blunt with them? Yeah. I'm just too blunt and direct with everybody. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not a fan of euphemisms. I'm just not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then also with, um, as being a professional pet sitter, my schedule is always in flux and always all over the place. And if you're going to work directly with survivors is one of the, it's not always that you need to be available on like a dime's notice, but you do need to be available for them. And for me, I'm just kind of like, doop, doop, like little hummingbird. Doop, doop, mm-hmm. doop, doop, doop. Um, and I was trying to find a way that I could help in some way. Um, I did find out that, you know, rain, um, Tori Amos's nonprofit Rain Rape and Incest National Network were f- offering they they have you know phone hotlines and there's also like the sexual assault hotline where people can be operators. Well, they were starting to have um, an online option for that. I'm like, oh, I can do that because then I can just you know I can be at home and doing my own you know working on my business stuff and then have like a chat box open so if somebody needs to chat I can you know put my work set aside without having to actually physically go anywhere um but obviously you had to be trained in order to do that and there's only like one training center in Oregon that was located in Bend I'm like well shit I need to figure out how I can get to Bend but then I called them and they had no idea what I was talking about so I'm like okay fuck that's not going to work um and then Fate would have it. I mean, this accident did fuck up my entire life, but I was rear-ended in 2012. And so then I ended up having to go into physical therapy. I went to physical therapy at ADAPT training, and my physical therapist was Amanda. And she, at the time, was a member of the Junior League of Portland and in their Stop Human Trafficking Committee. She brought the delicate drive to ADAPT. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is something that I wanted to be into and doing and working on. And then while I was still her patient, the Junior League released their documentary about um, domestic minor sex trafficking in Portland called Waiting for the Light. And it was premiered at um, Mission Theater in downtown Portland. There was a panel discussion of um, experts who had appeared in the documentary. There was an FBI agent, a prosecutor, and a couple other um, like police officers and other people involved in it. And Amanda was the moderator. So my mom and I went, and that's when I learned about the Junior League. I'm like, oh, this is perfect because they don't work directly with survivors. They work in a supportive manner to the organizations who do work directly with survivors. So who works directly with the survivors? Um, <clears throat> there are a few organizations. 
few organizations in Portland that I do know of. I'm sure that there are more. Um, Rose Haven, they are a day shelter for homeless women. And so a lot of homeless women are vulnerable to being trafficked and have been trafficked. There's also um, Rahab Sisters. They work directly with survivors out on the east side in like Mount Tabor area, I think. Um, and then there's New Avenues for Youth. They work a lot with foster children. So, you know, foster children are um, high vulnerability rate for human trafficking. So there's a lot of sex trafficking um, um, survivors who they're working to support and having like a, they're, I think they, I think it's finished constructing, but kind of like a, like a, a home for them to get out of being homeless and have a place for them to stay and get their lives stable again. Um, a village for one has the same thing. They're out in like the Clackamas area. They have a, um, a home for survivors to live in so they can get off the street and get the, they also have like in counseling there too. So they get the counseling, they get all the services and resources that they need so that they can process the trauma. And it's gotta be so brutal being a foster parent. Cause you're either a really good person who's trying to make a difference or like some creepy, weird piece of shit. And I don't know how you filter those people out and how you figure out who's who, but when you hear, and maybe this is just my brain being biased, but like when you hear the term foster kid or foster parent, you just think broken youth who's in a house with 10 of the kids. And there's got to be good people that are trying to help them out and do things. But then you have situations like what you're talking about where that's like a, a red flag for trafficking. Well, I mean, the, the part of like, you know, a foster child who is a foster child because there was trauma in their childhood home. Um, unfortunately, the foster system tends to take children away from, you know, black families and indigenous families. Um, a lot more often than from white families that like, you know, one minor thing will go wrong with in a black family and they'll take the children away, children away, but they'll wait for like years of abuse in a white home before they take those children away. Well, do you know what necessitates the taking away of a child? Like, what does it take? What do you have to do as a parent to get the foster system to take your kid away? Um, it, abuse, neglect. I think are the big ones. I know that in in black families, though, like there was one time where a a single mother needed to go for I don't this wasn't in the Portland area. I think it was like in Texas or something like that. Um, a black mother, single mother, had a job interview, but she didn't. She couldn't afford daycare or you know anyone to babysit her child, so she brought her child with her. The kid was sitting in the car waiting for her. Police were notified. And just from that one instance, they took the child. Hmm. Um, but then we also have the instance where the these, I forget the, the family name, big, it's a huge Portland scandal happened. Like the family lived up in like in Vancouver, but a lot of the bullshit happened in Oregon. Um, these two white lesbian women adopted um, several black children and they were part of the foster system. They had been removed from their parents in the foster system, and then they adopted them. But they were starving the kids. They were abusing the kids. They were using them as props. And then when the law was finally, and this happened for years and years and years, even like the neighbors were reporting and saying, like, this is something's weird's going on over or in that house. The children are way too small. Um, they were posting racist pictures of them online. And they were getting accolades. Oh, you're such good white people taking care of these, you know, 
you know, childless parent, you know, parentless kids. And then they, it culminated with them driving their minivan off a cliff. And mm-hmm. you, remember, you remember? Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, you know, there was evidence that these women were abusing the, their adopted children and yet the authorities didn't do anything about it. Um, but generally speaking, for a child to go into the foster system is because there was the parents were either neglecting them or abusing them in some form or another. Um, it's just skewed to give the benefit of the doubt to white parents versus the benefit of the doubt to black parents. So that's another aspect where um, in human trafficking and sex trafficking, if you are not white, that's automatically a vulnerability point for someone to target you for trafficking. You're saying people of color get tar- get trafficked more than white people? Yes. Really? Yeah. So um, in, I'm pretty sure it was the, the doctor's research, the PSU did a study on sex trafficking, child sex trafficking here in Portland in 2012. And the report knows like, you know, I think the black population in Portland is somewhere around like 2%. But out of the survivors that they interviewed for this study, like it was like 30% hmm. of the victims were black. Hmm. So, I mean, like you, they're definitely targeted. And in um, uh, one of our, the Junior League's awareness events back in 2021, when it was virtual, the, the survivors that were interviewed were two black women. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason like they end up, them being more vulnerable to it was because a lot of, you know, black children are, uh, I forget what the term is, but they are treated as adults, even when they're children. So, you know, like a 12 year old black girl will be more sexualized or treated as, you know, when they're punished, they'll treat, they're punished more as if they were like an adult and should know better than a white kid. And so they are, suspended from school or expelled from school at a higher rate than white children are. And so if you don't have a place to go during the day, you're just out in the streets or you're out playing the playground or whatever, that's another access point for a trafficker. Do you do you think it's related to race though, or do you think it's related to level of income? It seems like Well, when we're talking about level of income, that's also related to race. If you look at the the wealth factor, the generational wealth of black families is like around $10,000. The average wealth of a black family is around $10,000. The average wealth of a white family is like $100,000. Hmm. So if you're even, um, and yeah, income has to do with it because if you don't have the resources um, to provide for your family, someone else, and a kid, kids understand the tr- struggle. Like you, you Okay, I love comedy, love stand-up comedy. A lot of like, you know, comics who grew up poor, they will talk about how when you know, when they were, you know, struggling, they understood the struggle. They know that their parents are struggling. I knew my parents were struggling when both my parents were laid off at the same time. I knew that they didn't, you know, have as much money as they would like or wanted to be able to afford some of the things for us kids. Um, so I gave up some things that I knew that cost money because I knew that my parents were struggling with money. I mean, mm-hmm. I gave up taking piano lessons. I gave up taking gymnastics. I gave up a lot of things because I knew that my parents couldn't really afford it. And the same thing that will happen with, you know, any other poor family that the kids will understand that the family is struggling. So if someone else is coming saying, Hey, I can offer you this job because that's another, um, recruiting tactic is they either getting, 
you know, modeling gigs or acting jobs, like it's easy money. And then they use that as a recruitment act instead of actually having a modeling job, it turns into sex work. Do you know percentages on that? How often do people get approached with something that seems legit versus just straight getting kidnapped? Do you have any like rough figure? I don't have um, the actual figure. Um, You can, you'd... Anecdotally. Anecdotally, I would say is probably straight kidnapping happens like maybe 5% of the time. Okay. So the majority of it, they are shysty entrepreneurs who find uh, vulnerable children or vulnerable young, typically women, I imagine, who don't have a lot of money and they offer them the opportunity to make money and then it turns into something that they can't leave. Is that Yeah, that's one of the, that, that is, um, I've, I don't know what type of pimp that, like, you know, the Romeo pimp uses romance and relationship and love as a way to recruit their victims. Um, and then there's the, like the model agent or the photographer who recruits people by saying, oh, I, you've got a great look. You could be a model. Here's my card. Let's do a photo shoot so you can get, you know, modeling work. That That's another tactic. Um, they're all, for just general human trafficking, for labor trafficking, then it is the, you know, the promise of work and a job. And then it turns out into not being a legitimate job. And it could, or like they will... Um, this happens a lot to immigrants. They'll take their passports and their, all the, their paperwork. Yeah. And then, because, like, if... I think I might burp. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> it's stuck right there. <laughs> it might come out later. That's all right. Um, they, they, you know, will tell these people, like, you know, we're... You will go into debt for for with us, so we can transport you from this country to this country, so you can get some work. And they're like, "Well, you need to pay us back," but then they will charge them for everything. Like they'll charge mm-hmm. them for rent and food and all of that stuff. But like you know, the food and housing that they have is not um, livable. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's just generally speaking, the people use um, manipulation as and coercion. And just add up right, right lies to recruit people. Yeah, it's like this brutal trick. Because because yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who are upset with the level of immigration in this country and other countries. But when you think about it, if you lived in a country where you couldn't make very much money, I mean, you're just scraping by, and you you maybe you have a wife and you have some kids, or you, you want to take care of your grandma. Who wouldn't? try to go to a different country to make more money that there's there's no one that's just what you would do and people get chastised for it and uh exploited and manipulated and i i totally get that you get this promise of come with me you can make 50 times a day what you normally do and you'll have a place to live and you'll be here with some people that you know. And then as soon as you get to the, that other place, maybe you don't speak the language as well. Maybe uh, they steal your passport and then you're you're in big trouble. Yeah. yeah. And that's another thing that happens with like mail order brides too. That a lot of um, 
it was Raphael House does um, they they're a domestic violence shelter, but they also do preventive education. One of their the educations that they provide is in her shoes. And the all every stories that they they use in this are all real stories. And one of them was an Asian woman married a, an American man, met him. He went over somewhere to Asia, met her, brought her back, married her, but he kept all of her passports and all of her identification. So even though, I mean, it technically since they're married and he is having sex with her, it is a form of sex trafficking. Ultimately, it's, you know, he's not selling her to other people, but she can't leave because she doesn't have any of her documentation. She doesn't speak the language. If she goes to like the doctors or, you know, um, any other support, she is like a luck of the draw. If there's somebody who actually speaks her language and can translate and find out exactly what's going on. Um, but yeah, you hear about, I mean, it was kind of bigger in the 90s and the early aughts, the mail order bride trope. Yeah, I mean, you always hear those words, but I don't know that I've ever experienced it. I guess if you had a quote unquote mail order bride, she probably wouldn't be going out much. If she couldn't communicate with people, yeah. you would just kind of keep her at home, I yeah. guess, and then no yeah. one would really know. Yeah. I don't know, it's such a weird concept. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, one of the ways that, you know, men who... They're they're just kind of trash humans, so they can't find women their age who will put up with their shit. Will they? But they are, you know, kind of incel. You know, the whole, the incel movement now um, is basically kind of derived from that. Is where you know men who feel that they are owed um, a sexual companion, but can't get it from actual real women in their lives will take advantage of a desperate woman in, in a war-torn country who, again, they don't have the resources. They don't have, you know, homes or income or the food that they need. Everybody's starving. They don't, you know, and they'll bring them over here. And then, yeah, that woman doesn't really have, no, she doesn't know of her rights. Sure, her, she doesn't have her documentation. Everything's basically controlled in her life by this person who essentially purchased her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's it's got to be way better now than it was a few hundred years ago. I mean, we have we've advanced in a lot of ways and we've gotten better at doing certain things, but this there's still some horrendous stuff that's happening all the time that you don't really think about. You don't think about because you don't need to. Well, it's, it's easy. not it's, it's easy. Not, it's not in your face, right? Yeah, and it's easy to get distracted with everything else that's going on but yeah. there's there's some crazy stuff happening and so that's why I'm glad you're here talking about it if you guys aren't working directly with the survivors you are offering um, resources for them to potentially utilize so with um, our when I when I joined the junior league our focus was um, ending the cycle of violence against children women and children. Um, and so our community partners um, were Rosehaven, Raphael House, um, Bradley Angle for a while, the Children's Book Bank. Um, and we would do, we provide volunteers for whatever the organization said that they would need volunteers for. So with Rosehaven, um, I've been doing a delivery run for them from Elephant's Deli to 
to Rosehaven for, I don't know, like five, six years or something like that. Once a week, I go pick up a, deli- a donation, food donation, and then deliver it to Rosehaven so that they don't have to worry about it. But they also have other, at like there's been like birthday parties that the Junior League has done with Rosehaven, like, and like days where they would go like help give their, their clients like mani petties and stuff like that. Um, and then also, but with the, with the sex trafficking committee, the two, our two biggest things were the waiting for the light documentary and then the delicate drive, which was now called the essential drive. So we would, part of it was awareness, but part of it was also to collect uh, necessary items for survivors to have. And then we would then deliver the donations. We split them up amongst the re- recipients and deliver them to the organization. So Rose Haven would get a donation. Janice Youth used to be a recipient of it. They also work with homeless children. Um, they would get a, a donations. Um, Rehab Sisters isn't the recipient. Village for One is a recipient. Um, and what we would get, you know, undergarments, socks, and then like toiletry items. Because one one of the things that when they were first studying this issue in Portland that led to the documentary was when survivors are rescued, they have to give up their undergarments as evidence. So then they're, they're basically left no underwear, no bra. Um, and having, again, having someone control every single aspect of your life, they're the ones choosing what type of underwear you wear, what type of clothes you wear, um, all of that stuff. And then they don't have, and also they run out, they don't have toiletry items. They don't have soap, shampoo, any of that. So they're checking for evidence of sexual partners. Is that why you have to give up your stuff? Yeah. 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 I mean, not, not every John is going to want to use protection. Yeah. So, yeah. And do you see things getting better? Are are you reaching more people? Do you see uh, this like penetrating more and more people across the area and, and you're helping more people as time goes on? Well, yes and no. I mean, the at least the awareness is getting a lot better. People know that this is happening. Granted, there's still a whole lot of misinformation out there, like the whole Pizzagate thing like the the democrats are having this huge like sex trafficking rings and stuff like that um or hollywood elites do granted some hollywood individuals are kind of in sex trafficking rings um but or that is straight from like straight kidnapping is how it happens so like beware of this brown man who's kind of following this kid in the stroller and like he was going to kidnap me and then kidnap my child and yeah misinformation well it must be difficult to get people out if they don't realize that something bad is happening. Like you said earlier, it is that it it, it is difficult. And the, the other aspect of that too, is that the, the trafficker will tell their victims that their family doesn't want them anymore, that because they're doing this, they're dirty and they're evil. And that also that the police will treat them as criminals, which unfortunately that is kind of factual. Um, so they they even if they do realize that something is wrong here or something they like they do want to get out like that um 16 year old girl from my school she wanted to leave and that was when he he said no well, no you're not going to leave and if you're going to leave then you don't 
get to live anymore. So it, it is very difficult to do extraction. And there's actually, you know, some organizations who their focus is strictly extracting someone from a situation. So, and they do, um, the national human trafficking hotline ran by the Polaris by Polaris. I forget their full name. Um, Polar Polaris um, is a nonprofit and they run the national um, human trafficking hotline. So you can, if you are suspecting that someone is either um, possibly being trafficked or you suspect a company, a business is trafficking their in individuals in there. Like you find like an illicit massage parlor and you're like, that doesn't seem like they're a licensed masseuse is working there. Um, and like, the reviews online are like, yeah, had a, had a, are mostly all dudes, and they talk about like, yeah, happy endings or anything along those lines. Mm -hmm. You can call the human trafficking hotline, give them their information, and then they will contact the authorities in the area, and then they the authorities and they can organ do more investigations and do an call an yeah, extraction team. I imagine that the best way to deal with it would be to take out whoever is in charge. But it's probably difficult to do that because maybe they use cash. Maybe, I mean, nothing's documented. How do you prove that somebody is kidnapping or, or in charge of someone else and, and keeping them from escaping? How do you prove that? It's very difficult. I mean, like, thankfully, when it, when it does come with children, there is no need to prove force, fraud, or coercion because children can't consent. Um but when it comes to adults, yeah, it's a lot more difficult to prove that an individual has been trafficked. And not only that, but since um, there's, again, so high demand and generally people, when they talk about like legalizing sex work, they're not thinking about the sex workers. They're mainly thinking about the Johns. Uh, like let Johns pay for sex, you know, let them, not, don't shame them, don't harm them. They're not really thinking about the harm that comes to sex workers, even if they actually choose to work in it versus you can't tell the difference if someone's being, the average person isn't going to know the difference between whether someone's being trafficked or they actually choose to work in the industry. And Johns generally don't care. Um, but yeah, proving the force, fraud and coercion does make it difficult to convict traffickers. There was um, a survivor who came to talk to the junior league she um, had been trafficked as an adult. She met her boyfriend through Plenty of Fish. And he he was, again, he, he sold her the whole, like, white picket fence, you know, family future. And then he started having her have, started out with giving massages to his friends. And that turned into actually having sex. And then she ended up having to then recruit other girls to come into his harem. Um, well, not harem is not really the correct word. Sounds like Epstein. Did you ever watch any of those documentaries? Um, I read some of the articles, but haven't seen any of the actual... Um, yeah. That's what he, he would do. I mean, he would send out Ghislaine Maxwell to get 14, 15 year old girls and bring them back and they'd give him massages. And then he'd say, if you bring your friends, I'll, it's like a pyramid scheme. Yeah. I will give you money and I will give them money too. Yeah. That's, it's it's um, one of the, the aspects where 
I mean, when we get into the criminal justice system, that that's even trickier. Anyway, uh, back to this woman. When someone someone found her, one of her like male friends while he was on the these sites, don't know, but he recognized her picture in like Backpage, um, and he's like he notified the authorities, and thankfully, even though. Um, in Oregon, you can still even arrest a child for prostitution. Um, the officer knew that she wasn't um, a prostitute. She, he knew from whatever the signs, he, he understood what was going on, knew that he, she was actually being trafficked. Well, when she was finally taking him to court and in court to try and convict him, she was getting death threats from people who didn't, were, didn't believe that he was actually trafficking her. And then even though he is technically registered as a sex, sex offender, they, you know, they were having, you know, they were still finding him on like plenty of fish trying to find another girlfriend, another mm -hmm. girlfriend. So even going through the whole trial, I mean, the same thing when it, when it comes to like you know, rape and sexual assault, the conviction rate of um, getting someone to actually be convicted of rape is like just a fraction of the number of individuals who yeah, I mean the way the law the law is based, it's it's difficult to prove yeah. anyone would do something in that situation. Like you have yeah. to have physical proof, which is difficult to document, yeah. especially if you have people who are brainwashed and manipulated and unable to really understand what's happening. And then no, I mean there I know that there was um, a bill in our state legislator while I didn't make it through but it was the hearsay law so like if an individual survivor escapes tells their story to say either the police officer or their counselor well, when it came to trial it's still required that that survivor has to testify against their trafficker hmm. well that's another layer of trauma because they have to face their um their abuser, their trafficker in court. Um, but the, the hearsay law would allow the counselor or the police officer who heard the story to testify on behalf of the victim. Yeah, I get that that's traumatic, but you kind of got to do it, don't you? Because it's your word against theirs. Right. But if you tell him, but that's, that's what the hearsay law would allow, would allow these survivors who... Yeah. Um, aren't at a place where they can face it. Yeah, they're they're still dealing with the original trauma. I can't handle the trauma on top of that. Um, that their testimony will still be heard, but through another authority figure who that that told in in authoritarian an authoritative process, like mm -hmm. either like you know a police interview or through the counseling, like the counselor can speak on behalf of the survivor because that was a, another thing that made it difficult that does make it difficult to convict these individuals is that the victims themselves can't testify they yeah. can't bring themselves to face that person in court and tell their story knowing that the defense lawyer is going to try and tell them that it's all their fault anyway yeah yeah it's a rough spot what, what is your opinion or, or the general opinion on the legalization of sex work and prostitution would that help in any way no not really no not really i mean because trafficking happens in legal institutions technically strip clubs strip clubs are legal in portland 
and yet individuals have been trafficked through strip clubs here in Portland. Um, sex work is legal in most areas, not most areas in Nevada. Like it's not legal in Vegas or like Reno. You have to have like a maximum number of um, citizenry in the, forget how, how it's termed, but in the smaller constituency areas, if there's a low enough demographic, then it's legal in those areas. Well, those legal brothels, people are trafficked through those brothels. Um, can I remember? Um, Rebecca Blender, Blender, Bender, Bender, I think is her last name. I'll have to look that up. Um, she is originally from Grants Pass, Oregon. She was trafficked through Oregon. And also trafficked in Nevada. And even there is um, NCOS, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. They have a class action lawsuit against the state of Nevada for allowing the violation of the 13th Amendment. Just for having um, sex work legal because it allows whenever when. Is if it's legalized everywhere, it's going to dramatically increase the demand. Well, there isn't going to be enough consenting adults to provide the services that the demand will require. I think I had this conversation with Chris Carey. Um, it just seems to me, and I could be totally wrong, but it just seems to me that if you're capable of selling your body in every way possible... You sell your body when you go to work. If you work at a Target, you're selling your body. You're selling your time. If you work yeah, in I'm the not, coal I'm mine. Not. No, I'm just saying, I don't know why that should be illegal. It seems like it creates so many other problems. And if we just said, your body's your body, you could sell it in any way you want to. It seems like maybe it would create some other problems, but it would alleviate a bunch of issues we currently have. Well, it would definitely allevi alleviate the whole idea of a individual being criminalized for the crime committed against them. But do you remember when marijuana was legalized? How it, I remember when it used to be illegal. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, when it was legalized, all of a sudden, everybody was like, people were lining up around the block to these dispensaries to get their pot. And the pot was then a lot of the, like, the, the, the demand was greater than the supply. But you know what it also did? It eliminated a bunch of shitty weed coming in from Mexico that people were selling illegally. Now you can buy it from a store. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. But the, it legalizing it dramatically increased the demand. Yes. So there's that. Now, the difference between legalizing drugs and legalizing sex work is what is the product in legalizing drugs? The product is drugs. an object. Okay. What is the product in sex work? It's a human being. So a person, even though we, we're legalizing um, narcotics and marijuana, I wouldn't really, marijuana is not really a narcotic, narcotic. Um, if people abuse it, mostly they're just harming themselves. Mm -hmm. They The residual harm is to their family and loved ones. I know this from personal experience. My brother did die from an actual heroin overdose, so I have that lovely experience. But with someone's abusing 
sex work, they're abusing and harming another human being. And that other human being, high probability is not a consenting individual. So Cupcake Girls, they're another, they're an organization who provides services and support to sex workers. And they don't differentiate um, between like actual sex workers and sex trafficking survivors. They just, they support them all. But through counseling, they found out that around 80% of their customers had been trafficked. That's 80%. So the vast majority of individuals who are in the commercial sex industry aren't consenting. They're being trafficked. Hmm. And that's with it being with, with with it being illegal to purchase sex. I just don't know what you do because there's going to be a demand for it forever. And it seems like you can either restrict it and prosecute people for for selling it, or you can just let it be. I well, I mean, this kind of goes across the board when it comes to any kind of labor and work. The power needs to be given to the workers. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. So if you right, but we, so you can't just initially just legalize prostitution or legalize sex work just outright because that's going to cause a lot greater harm. The demand is going to increase. More traffickers are going to do more recruiting with climate change, increasing the vulnerabilities, especially of, you know, poor and minority communities. Um, you have more vulnerable people is, is going to increase trafficking. Just outright legalizing it is going to create additional trafficking because the supply, the legitimate supply will not be able to meet the increase. They can't even meet the demand now, let alone if it's legalized and increased. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, one of the things that we should do, one, is start with the strip clubs and give um, employment rights and workers' rights to dancers. They don't have those. And, and in Portland, none of these strippers are employed by the strip clubs. They're all independent contractors. Hmm. And yet, and so by being an independent contractor means you don't get health care, you don't get any, you don't have employees' rights, barely even have workers' rights. Um, there was a, several years ago, there was a bill going through our state legislature that was going to give um, strip strippers actual workers' rights, but that didn't make it through either. Um, and even, and that's the other irony part, even if you choose to work in the sex industry that automatically increases your vulnerability to being um, trafficked. Because you can choose to, like if I wanted to go work at a strip club, I could go go through the whole employment process and be hired as an independent contractor. But say I didn't want to dance anymore. A lot of, there's been instances where managers have threatened the dancers, threatened their lives, threatened the lives of their children if they didn't go up and perform. That's trafficking. There's other instances, like there is a recent, um, there's also wage theft that happens a lot in strip clubs. I know of one case, uh, it made it to one of the comedy shows that I watched. I don't remember which one. Um, a strip club in Arizona where the they, the strippers were being, like 
just absolute wage that like being charged astronomically and have uh, for I don't know they like you know dancers have to tip out everybody have out of their tips they have yeah. to tip out everybody else well it was kind of the way that they were doing it was astronomically to the point where you would be like, oh yeah yeah that's not reasonable tipping out of the uh, the bouncer or the manager and then there was also the case of a stars cabaret out in beaverton where the manager and the owner knew that some of the dancers were like 15 16 years old mm-hmm. so it it's one of those things that if you actually require strip clubs to employ the strippers as employees and then allow them to, if they're, or if they're going to be having independent contractors, actually force them to adhere to the right, you know, to the qualifications of an independent contractor, which is the independent contractor dictates their pay, dictates their schedule. But that doesn't happen. How is it different from any other business? How How is like Arby's or Target or Fred Meyer or whatever, how are they required to hire employees and not private contractors, but strip clubs can? Um, or independent contractors? Yeah. Well. How does that work? It's part of it has to do with Portland's um, artistic expression law. So in Portland, like if you wanted to, you could just walk around the streets naked as long as it wasn't with the intent to arouse somebody else. It's legal. That's why we have the naked bike ride. Mm. So stripping and, you know, dancing is considered an artistic expression. So it's, it's one of those like little like they found a glitch in the system that they were able to, you know, they found that loophole and they've exploited it to where they don't hire dancers as employees. They hired as independent contractors. So they don't have to pay any of like any employment taxes. They don't have to pay for anything that you would have to, if you were going to hire an employee. So you're saying this only happens in Portland, Oregon. This doesn't happen in other States. I'm not familiar with other state laws. I just know that this is how it works in Portland. Well, yeah, they always say that Portland has more strip clubs per capita than any other. I wonder if that's why. Could be. Could be. Because we have very lax laws when it comes to that. Um, But again, those lax laws aren't benefiting the dancers themselves. It's benefiting the, the clubs. It's benefiting the managers and the owners of those clubs. But if we like it's and it should be across the board, we should be giving workers rights to every single industry because there's exploitation happening everywhere, not just in um, when you're talking about, yeah, you're selling your body. If you're working at Macy's just as much as you're selling your body, if you're you know working at Dolphins, but it's um, at least the employee at Macy's or if they ha- are able to unionize, mm-hmm. like allow the dancers to unionize so that they can, you know, fight for what they actually need and to, if they are, and have an, an, in a way that if they are being abused, that they aren't afraid to report it in case that then they will be arrested. Yeah. Yeah, it's a power struggle because anybody's capable of starting an OnlyFans or... Yeah 
going anywhere and working however they want to. But I, I get what you're saying. If you get trapped in a scenario where you feel like somebody is in charge of you and they're threatening you, and then you feel like you can't do anything about it. And it's, it's related to your income level and it's related to pressure and manipulation. And that's gotta be a rough spot to be in. And <laughs> Like we said earlier, sometimes it's easier just to do what you're doing than to rock the boat. Yeah. Yeah. But you are doing what you can to offer uh, resources and guidance for people who are attempting to, to leave that, that area, right? Um, mostly where my focus is is on education and awareness. Just like, you know, doing something like this is letting people know that it happens, how it happens, why it happens. And the more people are aware of it, the, I mean, illicit activity thrives in the dark. If you start shining the light on illicit activity, it can't thrive anymore. If you start telling the truth, more even, you know, more individuals will start realizing on their own, I'm not, I'm not in a situation where I thought I was. I mm -hmm. thought, I thought this was what I wanted, but no, I'm, I, you know, I didn't choose to do this. I didn't choose to do that. Um, and yeah, it's just because I've met some survivors, but most of the time it's um, after when they've actually been willing to tell their own story. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, you know, they've, they've gotten out of it um, either on their own or through the help of others. They've, you know, gone through a lot of their counseling to realize what was happening to them. And, and they're at the point where they want to tell their stories to again, help somebody else realize that they can get out or help other people realize no, it can, it can happen to, you know, a middle, um, middle class income family. It can happen to a, you know, Christian school um, uh, student. It can happen to, yeah, I mean, it happens everywhere. Well, and we also didn't even discuss substance abuse. How often are these girls getting hooked on something and then... They're they're uh, they're guys in charge of whether or not they can get high. It seems like that would happen often. It does. That's another tactic that traffickers use to keep them. Um, they they give them. I mean, most drug uh, dealers would do this anyway. They like here's a sample for free, and as soon as they get hooked, well, now you owe me money. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, and um, this was mentioned in that Canadian Reader's Digest article where these Romeo pimps would start, you know, they go to the parties and get their girl to start using like, you know, heroin or cocaine. And as soon as they're starting to, you know, they're addicted and they want more, like, oh, well, now you have to pay me. Well, how you're going to pay me is by having sex with my friends. Mm -hmm. um, so, but then also um, all addiction is, the source of all addictions is through trauma. So if someone has experienced trauma, they're a lot more likely to start using um drugs as a way to um, escape from their trauma. Yeah. So yeah, drug use is um, high. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle, yeah. for sure. Do the victims that you are aware of and that you have interacted with, do they 
do they have the ability to speak with psychologists and other people that can help them with issues of the mind, emotional issues? Um, yeah, well, like all of the organizations I've already mentioned, they have counselors on staff That's cool. that do support the survivors. So they provide not only like the essential, like I need this to live, um, you know, food, clothing, um, they also provide them counseling services. Yeah. Um, and Rose Haven um, also provides like job searching. They have lockers and stuff like that so people can keep their belongings there safe. They have, you know, internet access so they can help people like look for jobs and um, that. And I know, you know, a village for one has the same type of programs for the children in their service or well, even adults because they provide services up to like age 24, 20, you know, they don't, um, some of them, they don't have like an age out, like, you know, you can age out of the foster system and then you don't have those resources anymore. Um, yeah, it's probably 18, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It may have like increased to like 21 recently or something like that, but for the most part, yeah, 18, once you turn 18, you're aged out of the foster system. And so you can stay with the foster family that you have if it's a healthy situation, but the government is no longer going to be subsidizing um, your living costs. Yeah. Um, and then um, I'm sure Rahab Sisters has counseling services too, but they have like, you know, group meals where everybody can get together and they, you know, provide these women with a sense of community because that's also very important, whether you're coming off of, you know, out of being trafficked or coming um, out of addiction too, is community yeah. is, and connection is essential to recovery. Mm -hmm. So they provide these services for them. And a majority of these people are women, correct? Does it happen with men very often? Um. On occasion, men are trafficked, but for the most part, it's children, boys and girls, and women. Yeah. Um, men are are um, labor trafficked. Yeah. High percentage of men are labor trafficked. Um, but then also children and women can be both sex and labor trafficked. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so gross. It is. Using people. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we can talk about anybody that you know that would be willing to talk with me. Um, I can do things anonymously and, and block their face and even block their name and stuff like that. So I'd be very interested in talking to somebody firsthand if that was possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know any survivors personally. Yeah. Um, Rebecca Bender, um, who you have her side up right there. Yeah. Right. Becca Bender in initiative. She does a lot of talks and um, does interviews and stuff like that. She'd be a good resource. I mean, like she, you know, she, she's from Grants Pass, Oregon. She now lives in Texas. Um, but um, she might, she have one of her, the Elevate Academy is another one of her programs, which is um, an online academy for survivors. Um, and so she might know someone who is in the Portland area Um who is part of her program, who'd be willing to talk. Um, and then I can put my feelers out too. Oh, um, I forget her name right now, but she's director of the New Avenues for Youth, a new day program. And she is a survivor. Wow. And she, um, so the junior league is our, the um, stop human trafficking committee is having a, um, our, 
Essentials Drive Summit next Saturday. And she is going to be one of the speakers. I'm one of the speakers, too. Nice. And then Liz Stark, I think that's her last name, of Rose Haven is also going to be speaking. Um, and so she might be able to reach out to some of their clients at Rose Haven who have been trafficked and would be willing to talk to. Cool. Yeah, we can talk about that. It's it's awesome to see that there's a, a community of institutions that are helping in yeah. Portland. Because, yeah, yeah it, it's going to take a lot of work. You got a lot of, a lot of nasty, powerful people fighting you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean the um, NCOS is another re, um, resource for education for learning, like you know how um, so they they focus a lot on porn. I, mean, I don't know. You probably heard of all. You know, I've heard of porn. Pornhub. <laughs> well, no, like the the I know the, about porn. The, the legal troubles that Pornhub is getting into. I saw they did a thing on Netflix. I, I watched. 30 minutes of it or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. They apparently don't filter their videos or don't, don't check to see if they're from people in like compromising situations or underage. Yeah. 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 I mean, and there's even like, this isn't like some of the videos too. I mean, I don't, I, I hate porn, but I'm one of those people's I can't hate things if I don't really know anything about it. So yeah, I've watched some porn just to get some like idea of what type of topics out there. And there's, like some videos where you see like the the individuals interviewed beforehand say, oh, yes, I agree to that. And then you watch the video and you can see that their participation enthusiasm diminishes. Mm -hmm. But then basically it goes from, oh, yes, I want to experience this. And then, uh, and then you see the actual abuse start happening. It's where they try and protect themselves from being penetrated again. And they're just like their hands are pushed away, tied back. And so you see that the. In, in a lot of these things where like initially you do consent, but then you aren't allowed to withdraw your consent. Yeah. And that happens a lot in porn. And then also the just like, even though it might be scripted, there's a lot of violence against women in porn. And that without the context, a lot, of, especially like young boys who are watching it, they don't have the understanding that what they're watching isn't, one isn't real, especially this like one of the scripted ones. This isn't real, but they they have this idea that that is what how women and girls want to be treated when it comes to romantic or sexual relationships. Well, yeah, and it's it's a different different spot in our timeline that you can go on a computer in your pocket, no matter how old you are, you can go search for anything you want you mm. can search for people getting their heads blown off and up until 20 or 30 years ago you didn't have access to everything like that and so it's a it's the mm. wild west right now with anything yeah. and that's like one of the the issues that like encos and a couple of other advocates are coming across is you know they Backpage got shut down because the owners of Backpage weren't willing to do the work necessary to actually prevent postings of people who were obviously being trafficked and minors who were obviously being trafficked. Um, OnlyFans was about to shut itself down because they didn't want to put um, age verification and consent verification on their website. To just two simple, simple things where like you have to prove like now you, like you have the technology that you can actually like 
post up you like to prove that you're 18 it's not just yes i'm 18 is no post a picture of your your photo id to prove mm-hmm. that you're 18 in order to view this website and then for people who are posting videos to actually prove that there was consent of all parties in the video um and that seems to be reasonable if you want to prevent people you know sexual abuse material from being online you have to prove that the people in the video are consenting to it. And then you have a lot of people who's like, oh yeah, they want to shut down OnlyFans because they're opposed to sex workers. Like, no, they're OnlyFans is wanting to shut themselves down because they don't want to put these two protections in place. Mm -hmm. And that also is happening like with Pornhub and other porn sites where they don't want to put those protections in place. We're just proving one that you are over 18 to view this Mm -hmm. site. And two, that everybody in this video that you're posting is consenting to what's happening in the video. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird because you can record anything at any time and not even know you're being recorded. Yeah. Then somebody could lie. Somebody could make a fake ID. Somebody could uh, use software to make your voice sound like you. And I mean... Yeah, deep deep fake and AI is going to going to make this aspect of it. And like the, there's a lot of benefits to the to AI, but it's going to help the deep fake stuff. It's going to get weird. It's going to yeah. get really weird. It is. Yeah, and we're like right on the cusp of it and I don't think anyone really knows what's happening and it's going to it's going to get crazy. Yeah, and well as with everything, the criminals are going to figure it out first. Yeah, I mean that's that's the problem with any aspect of life you cannot you cannot foolproof anything there's always Mm. somebody that's going to figure out how to go through the back door yeah i don't know i mean it sounds negative but i think i think you're putting up a good fight and there are tons of people in the world who need help and there are tons of people who don't know that they need help and they need the opportunity to learn and to educate themselves and get free from whatever is oppressing them. It is a dangerous place and everybody's experience is different. Yeah. And it's, it's based on who your parents were and what your environment was when you grew up and how much money you had and whether or not you got beat up at school. Like there's so many factors that go into everything. And I think people don't realize all the time that every person is extremely different. You can't just cookie cutter something for everyone. It's going to be nuanced for each individual. But. And even when it comes to like fighting it, it's going to be based on each individual. Rebecca Bender actually has a quiz to decide like what area of anti-trafficking is best suited to you, whether it's rescue, recovery, prevention. Um, and actually one of the best ways to prevent this from happening is like having a universal basic income or, you know, universal health care, living wages as yeah. minimum wage. Because if you reduce the the in the aspects that create vulnerability yes. in individuals, even like a lot of like you know abuse happens because you know they're the parents are struggling financially and then they you know they yep. or they you know they're suffering from addictions themselves but they don't have the resource to actually recover from it in a healthy way and so that's just transferred onto the children. Mm-hmm. So we've actually have things like universal health care, um, mental health care, um, addiction recovery. 
basic, you know, universal, either universal basic income and or, you know, living minimum wage, then a lot of these vulnerabilities will disappear. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That is what most people's stress in their life comes from is the inability to to pay for the simple stuff you need. Yeah. And then, yeah, if you're stressed out about work, you're stressed out about money, you can't pay your rent, you can't pay your bills, then everybody knows, or not everybody knows, but they should know when somebody's <laughs> freaking out on you, when they're honking their horn in traffic or they're screaming at you or they get mad at you when you're trying to buy a loaf of bread at the grocery store it's not because of you yeah it's, it's because of what's happening in their life and yeah i think most of the time it's directly related to money and i mean the answer is not to just give everybody the same amount of money you have to have you have to have some sort of meritocracy where people work for things and are rewarded for what they put in but yes there needs to be a base level where you can't have well, like well like the, like the universal basic income is just like yeah everybody will get like one thousand dollars a month yeah, yeah which isn't enough to survive if you aren't working in some way or another so yeah if you have a you know a unskilled job that will pay less than say like a lawyer then yeah they're still going to have like varying levels of income and um lifestyles but at least no one is struggling to survive. Exactly. Yeah. I agree. There's a lot of things that need to change. I hope we get to see them in, I would love to see in them. our lifetimes. That'd be nice. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's a good spot. I very much appreciate you coming and talking with me and You're sharing welcome. all of that. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah.